Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. My name is Dan Kilbride. I'm the chair of the history department at John Carroll University outside of Cleveland, Ohio. I'm also the host of New Books in American Studies, where we pick a new or recent book in the field of American studies and have a powwow with the author. I'm thrilled that this week we are joined by Michael Burlingame. He's here to talk about his two-volume biography of Abraham Lincoln entitled Abraham Lincoln, A Life. This book was published a couple of years ago by the Johns Hopkins University Press in hardback, but in 2013, the press put out a two-volume paperback edition. So this book isn't new, but it is new-ish. As someone who's interested in the antebellum and Civil War eras, I have been deeply interested in such an in-depth biography. And since I also teach a course on the life and times of Abraham Lincoln, I've been anticipating the paperback edition of this book for some time. In addition to being a skilled historian, Michael Burlingame is also a sophisticated advocate of using psychological approaches to history. And certainly Abraham Lincoln is an apt subject that absolutely demands a careful touch with psychological methodologies. And so this book really is an example of how to use psychology and history very well. Uh, Good morning, Mike Burlingame. Good morning. Uh, Today at New Books in American Studies. We are speaking to Michael Burlingame about his new book, Abraham Lincoln, A Life. Uh, Michael Burlingame is Chancellor Naomi B. Lynn Distinguished Chair in Lincoln Studies at the University of Illinois in Springfield, where he's been since 2009. Originally, uh, this was published at Johns Hopkins University Press in 2008, Uh, The paperback edition has just come out in 2013. So this book is not exactly new, but it is newish. This is the winner of many prizes, including the Lincoln Prize at the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College. It was named one of the five best books of 2009 by The Atlantic Magazine and one of the top 10 Lincoln books ever by the Chicago Tribune. And, you know, our listeners may be thinking that they know all they need to know about Abraham Lincoln. You know, what more could we possibly have to learn about Abraham Lincoln of all people? But those people would be wrong. Uh, this book is, first of all, very readable. It you know, just in time for the beach reading season. Uh, you can impress the people on the beach by bringing these two volumes with you. And, uh, you know, it covers all of Lincoln's life in great detail, you know, f- from his childhood through the Civil War. Uh, The first book covers his early life through the beginning of the war, and then the second book covers his war years through the assassination. So there's something in here for people who want to know about Lincoln's personal life, his professional life as a lawyer, and his political career, and of course, his leadership during the Civil War. So, Mike Burlingame, uh, tell us a bit about yourself. Well, I'm a Lincoln scholar in part because when I was a freshman in college, back toward when the earth cooled, um, I had a memorable teacher named David Herbert Donald, uh, and I was a freshman at Princeton, and he gave a Civil War course, which I uh, sat in on, I, I took, and he was a mesmerizing lecturer, 
and uh, and he was an even more scintillating small group discussion leader. And uh, we became quite close. He would have me out to his house uh, regularly, which was a heady experience for a callow youth of, of 19, as I then was. Uh, and he had just won the Pulitzer Prize for the first volume of his Charles Sumner biography. And as a sophomore, I was invited by him to be his research assistant. So there I was, 20 years old, helping to research the second volume, the first volume of which uh, had won the Pulitzer Prize. Wow. And he left Princeton after my sophomore year and went to Johns Hopkins, uh, replacing uh, C. Van Woodward, who had moved on to Yale. And uh, I followed him down there after I graduated from Princeton. And so he was very much my mentor. And if he had been a medievalist, I would probably be writing about the Middle Ages today. <laughs> so, so I think it was David Donald who was the principal uh, force which led me to become a Lincoln scholar. But in addition to that, I think I became a Lincoln scholar in part because I grew up in Washington, D.C. Now, this was just slightly after the unfortunate event at Ford's Theater. And uh, but anyway, I had the. I got to see the White House, the Capitol, Ford's Theater, uh, Lincoln Memorial, picnics at Manassas. All those were part of my, my early years, and I think that may have predisposed me to become a Lincoln scholar. And uh, when I was at Princeton, uh, I uh, was able to get a job in the summer between my junior and senior years, between uh, uh, the, in the, that summer period, at the Library of Congress, working in the manuscript division, which is the main mecca for all serious students of, of American history. It contains the personal papers of presidents and cabinet members and members of Congress and the Supreme Court and generals and all kinds of prominent people. And there I was, at 21 years old, and, uh, processing manuscripts and dealing with documents that nobody had ever seen before, except the people who were the recipients thereof. And uh, that job had been obtained for me through the good offices of the chairman of the history department at Princeton, uh, a gentleman named Jerome Blum, who spent his summers at the Library of Congress working on a magisterial history of the uh, development of, of capitalism in Europe. And he would regularly swing by the manuscript division at lunchtime and invite me to join him and his colleagues to dine. And that was a very heady experience. Uh, and so one day, about a dozen of us were sitting around a table at the Library of Congress cafeteria. Uh, and these were very distinguished historians of American history and, and European history. And one Americanist began telling a story about Douglas Southall Freeman, who had written a four-volume biography of Robert E. Lee, a three-volume study of Lee's lieutenants, and at the end of his life was working on a multi-volume biography of George Washington. And the fellow who was telling about Freeman said, you know, it's a funny thing about the author, as each of the volumes of his Washington biography appeared, you could detect changes in Freeman. He began to adopt Washington's mannerisms and his gestures, and he began to speak in 18th century locutions. And, <laughs> and as time went by, he even began to look like George Washington. Well, at that point, I interjected by saying, well, <clears throat> when I graduate, I'm going to go on into a Ph.D. program in the Civil War and Reconstruction, and people tell me that I look like Abraham Lincoln. Well, at that point, Professor Blum banged his fist on the table, and all the knives and forks and spoons leapt up into the air and came clattering back down to the green form mica-clad tabletop causing a racket that made people all around us crane their heads to see what was going on. And uh, Professor Blum looked at me and announced in a voice, 
that could have been heard in Baltimore if the door had been open. He said, holy macro, Mike. He said, you're ugly, but you're not that ugly. <laughs> <laughs> and ever since then, I think I knew I was, I was fated to be a Lincoln scholar. So anyway, so, um, so then I, went, I, I did my PhD under, under David Donnell, um, and then I went to teach uh, in at Connecticut College in New London, which was then known as Connecticut College for Women. I went co-ed the second year I was there, and I taught there for many years. And um, there was a very heavy teaching load in those days, You'd do, and there was very little uh, pressure to publish. And so uh, I, did, I taught a lot of different courses and um, uh, didn't do much uh, in the way of scholarship. But then in my early 40s, I was moved to, to do a book on Lincoln. To this day, I'm not entirely sure why, but um, uh, I, I wanted to do a psychological study. And it turned out that being in New London, Connecticut was, was in some ways a providential because it was near Providence, Rhode Island, where John Hay's papers are located. John Hay was Lincoln's assistant personal secretary during the Civil War. And his papers at Brown University are a treasure trove of information about Lincoln. And there's a magnificent collection of Lincoln-related materials um, that, that were not collected by Hay that had been donated by John D. Rockefeller, Jr. And so it's a great place to do Lincoln research. And it's only an hour away from New London, Connecticut, where I was based. And so I did a lot of work there. And when I first started my book, um, I thought so much had been written about Lincoln and that everything important that he had written or that had been written about him or his administration had long since been unearthed by an army of previous biographers and scholars. And so I thought I wouldn't have to leave New London much to do original research and unpublished sources. And I could just use the collections at Connecticut College and materials that were available through interlibrary loan and wouldn't have to go traipsing around the country looking at manuscript collections and newspaper archives and the like. Uh, and so I drafted the book, uh, which was called The Inner World of Abraham Lincoln. It's a series of essays about Lincoln's relations with his father, um, with his mother, with his wife, with his children, his uh, uh, midlife crisis, his depressions, uh, that sort of thing. I wanted to call it Shrink and Lincoln, but, uh, my, <laughs> but my publisher, the University of Illinois, those stuffy folks, they wouldn't allow me I'll to bet. do that. So anyhow, yeah, <laughs> so I drafted, I drafted this book based on these published sources. But I thought, you know, I really ought to do some original research. Um, and so I did go to Brown. Uh, and the first day I was there, and the first hour I was there, I discovered a tremendous amount of brand new information. Now, I was shocked because I thought my book would contain new interpretations of familiar materials, but no original information, raw data. But, but within an hour of starting to look for new information in unpublished sources, I found a treasure trove. I had I'd gone to Brown, and I went to the John Hay Library, the, the rare book library, and I went to the card catalog. You may be old enough to remember what a card catalog is. Um, yes, I do. <laughs> and I, I had a very sophisticated research design. I went to the drawer marked L. <laughs> I pulled it out, <laughs> and I started to look under Abraham Lincoln. Well, that's the beauty of biography, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and so I was going along, and the, the, the librarians at Brown had compiled a very elaborate um, set of um, uh, catalog cards for, for documents as well as publications. And so there were, I ran into a series of the, these three by five cards in which uh, Lincoln's name was at the top, and then there was a description of an interview 
that his principal White House secretary, a fellow named John G. Nicolay, had conducted with people who knew Lincoln well. And these interviews were conducted about a decade after the assassination. And there was all kinds of new information in those interviews. And I knew that because I had read the published literature pretty thoroughly. And oh, I was very excited uh, because the, these were people who, who were very close to Lincoln and they had a lot of important new things to say about his professional life and his personal life. And so I said to the to the uh, my brains at Brown, I said, "You've done a magnificent job in in, in uh, preserving and uh, cataloging and indexing and describing these documents." And I can't believe that people haven't used them. Uh, and I actually I published those interviews then as uh, my second book called "An Oral History of Abraham Lincoln." Uh, and the librarians at Brown explained to me, well, and this was maybe 20 years ago or more. Uh, they explained. Uh, well, Abraham Lincoln is a dead white male, after all, and it's not very fashionable to write about dead white males if you want to get ahead in the history profession and American colleges and universities in this day and age. Um, and if you really want to get ahead, you should write on things like, well, homosexuality among 19th century Chinese pirates uh, oh. or, <laughs> or cultural hegemony in the corset panic of 1921, things like that. That's exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> so I said, well, what can I tell you? I'm interested in Lincoln, and so I'm going to stick with it, whether it's fashionable or not. So anyhow, uh, so I found all this fabulous new information in these interviews that have been conducted uh, by Nicolay, who, with John Hay, were working, the two of them together were working on uh, a 10-volume, ten 10-volume ten biography of Lincoln. Mine's only two. It was originally supposed to be four, <laughs> uh, and it is. 2,000 pages, about a million words, so it's, it's, it's pretty substantial, but, but 10 volumes is what they wrote. And they conducted those interviews uh, as part of their research design, but it turns out they didn't use them oh. because they, they said that, uh, and understandably, as, as a historian, you can appreciate this argument, that, that we historians prefer to use contemporary documents rather than reminiscences written 20, 30, 40 years after the events we're writing about because people's memories are not reliable and they play tricks on the on, on sharks. Sure. And uh, as Mark Twain once said, the older I get, the more vividly I remember things that never happened. Um, so, uh, uh, so they didn't use and, – and they had exclusive access, Nicolay and Hay did, to Lincoln's personal papers. They were good friends with Robert Todd Lincoln, Lincoln's only son who survived into adulthood. Uh, and, um, and so they were given uh, monopoly control access to these papers. And so they wrote their 10-volume biography based on um, Lincoln's incoming mail, drafts of his speeches and letters um, and the like, um, and didn't use the reminiscences. But, but if you do use reminiscences in conjunction with contemporary documents, they can be very revealing. Uh, and so, <clears throat> so I thought, well, I should really look at other early historians of Lincoln uh, and look at their uh, research notes because they went out and interviewed people who knew Lincoln and, and uh, their interviews, uh, partly uh, their interviews show up in their books. But I, I bet that their publishers were like my publisher, saying, you've got to condense that book. It's too long. You've got to compact that snowball. And then the Johns Hopkins Press was merciless in forcing me to stay within 2,000 pages. And so, um, so I thought, okay, uh, 
let's just look. So I looked at, I had a Tarbell's papers. She's of course most famous for her muckraking journalism right. and book about the standard oil company and the like, but she also did a, a two volume Lincoln book that came out in 1900. And uh, she had a, a great collection of her papers at Allegheny college her alma mater, and I went there and found all kinds of new stuff. <clears throat> and once again, I asked the librarian, I said, this is fabulous new sources of information, but nobody seems to use them that I'm aware of. She says, well, you're the first person to come out here and spend more than a day looking at this stuff <laughs> in the 30 years I've wow. been here. Um, <laughs> so um, now all that stuff is now online, by the way. It makes it a lot easier for future scholars. Um, uh, and then I did similar research in, in early biographers' papers at, in Chicago and New York and Boston and Philadelphia and elsewhere. And I did find a lot of interview notes that didn't manage to make it into these uh, uh, published works. But then I thought I shouldn't just confine myself to manuscript research in, in, uh, in early biographers, but I should really look at Lincoln's friends in Illinois and his political allies and his colleagues at the bar. And then, then during the war, the generals and the admirals and the cabinet members and the senators and the representatives and lawyers and journalists and all that. And uh, and I found a tremendous amount of new stuff. I was just I was astounded at how much new raw information there was out there. Um, and so I published a number of volumes of original source material, like an original source material, John Hayes' diary, which had been published earlier, but in a rather uh, sloppy fashion. Uh, Nicolay's letters, Nicolay's interviews, um, their assistants, uh, journalism. Nic uh, Hay wrote journalism while he was in the White House anonymously, and Nicolay did too. So I, I did several volumes of original source materials. And then I thought somebody ought to put all this stuff together and write a new cradle-to-grave biography, really uh, giving us a new portrait a la Sandberg. Um, and in some detail, and I looked around, and nobody else was uh, <laughs> willing to do it. And I thought, well, what the heck, I'll do it. Uh, when around? When was this around? Uh, I, I decided to under to, I, I signed a contract with Random House in 1997. Okay, um, so not that long ago, actually. Well, right, and so I, uh, so um, the original the contract with Random House called for um, uh, three volumes. Uh, of moderate size, uh, and so I turned in the the first volume, and they said you got to cut it in half, and I said I can't do that, <laughs> and so so uh, Hopkins, I, I had published a book with Hopkins earlier, and they had expressed some interest in in the big book, and I told them I was negotiating with Random House, and that uh, that if that didn't work out, I'd be happy to to uh, work with them, and so uh, so I, I switched then from. Random House to Hopkins. My creditors are still weeping about that decision, by the way. But I said, I said, look, if I'm going to be remembered for anything, I'm going to remember for this book, and I want it done right. So I said, okay. Mm -hmm. um, so Hopkins was very gracious in giving me a much bigger canvas to 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 paint my portrait on, uh, the portrait of Lincoln. So, um, so I worked for. Uh, I started in 1997, uh, but then of course I had a back log of a lot of material that I collected over the years for the first book and then these edited volumes of primary source materials. Uh, and so in 97, I really started to focus on the book and I was making progress. I was teaching at Connecticut College uh, so, uh, and working in the summers and vacations and evenings and weekends and things. And so I was making progress on the book, but I wasn't making enough progress to meet the 2009 deadline. Mm -hmm. I had to get the book out in time for Lincoln's 200th birthday. Right. So, um, uh, then out of the blue, a philanthropist 
I like my work, offered to subsidize my research for a long time. And the college offered me an early retirement package. So in 2001, I was able to retire and devote full-time to the book. So for seven years, I did nothing but work on the book. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so that, that was very ge- – that, that was unexpected. It was completely unexpected. I, I kept applying for grants to the NEH and National right. Humanities Council and all that sort of thing, and nothing ever happened. And then so without even applying for a grant, I get this seven-year grant. <laughs> just, life is funny. In any event, uh, so I was, I was able to really put my nose to the grindstone and um, – and uh, did all kinds of traveling around the country because it's not just you can't just do Lincoln research for the presidential leaders in yes. in Washington or Springfield. Those are the main meccas. But uh, you, you, it's easy, of course, as, as you would well imagine that it's easy to find what Lincoln wrote. Uh, that has been long since established sure. in a good scholarly edition. And uh, his incoming mail is easy to find because it's all gathered at the Library of Congress, or much of it is. Uh, but what's really hard to find is correspondence about him and about his administration. Uh, and that requires going through endless manuscript collections, sifting for gold nuggets. But there's an awful lot of gravel in there. But if, but if somebody goes to the White House, a congressman or a senator from Ohio, say, um, and then he comes uh, and then he writes to his wife or to his law partner or to his brother and says, you know, I was in the White House today and I met with the president and this is what he looked like. and This is what he said. Those are valuable letters, but they're hard to find because um, right. most places don't have that kind of thorough indexing that the John A. Library had done on the Hay Papers. Um, so uh, so you and uh, many times those congressmen and senators and generals don't leave their papers to the Library of Congress or their ears don't they wind up in the New Hampshire Historical Society, the Ohio Historical Society, Allegheny College, <laughs> um, uh, the Iowa, University of Iowa, that sort of thing. So to travel all around the country and, and uh, did research in those manuscript collections um, and discovered all kinds of new stuff. I just I was just thrilled. Uh, and then in newspapers, I discovered a tremendous amount of new stuff in newspapers because most previous biographers of Lincoln, uh, particularly during the war years, uh, focused on the New York newspapers uh, on the perfectly reasonable assumption that the New York papers, because they had the biggest budgets and the biggest staffs, had the most comprehensive coverage of what was going on in Washington. And also, the, and this is in the old days, the New York Times was indexed. <laughs> that, that was a help. Um, this, this is way back in the dark ages before digital newspapers. Um, and uh, and so it wasn't entirely irrational to assume that the New York papers would have the best coverage. But I discovered that you can find out an awful lot more if you look at newspapers in Philadelphia, Columbus, Ohio, Cleveland, Chicago, Pittsburgh, um, Boston. Uh, because, again, if, if somebody came out of the White House and spoke to the president, he wouldn't go and talk to him necessarily if he was from Iowa to, to a reporter from the New York Times or the Herald or the Tribune or the Post. He'd go talk to the, uh, the uh, Burlington Hawkeye correspondent. Um, <laughs> and so you have to go through, or at least I did, go through the Washington Correspondence day by day um, on microfilm of these various papers. And I discovered a oh. tremendous amount of new stuff in that in those newspapers. Uh, and then in, 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 in archives, in public records, I discovered lots of new material. The, the records of, of Congress, for example, the committee records, the Committee on Public Buildings, for example, during the Civil War received lots of complaints, handwritten complaints from employees of the White House about how Mrs. Lincoln was padding payrolls and padding expense accounts oh. and submitting bills that were clearly false. Um, 
and uh, that that was never published. But there there it is in these handwritten documents written by people in the White House at the time. So. So I thought all this new information really ought to be shared with the larger public, and um, so that was that was the impetus behind the book, and that's how it got done. Well, well, that's, that's a long time coming. Um, I want to ask a question sure. about something you just touched on, and that is um, one of the things that in your book that I thought was very interesting was your take on Mary Todd Lincoln. Yes. Uh, uh, one quote that leapt out at me was uh, you wrote that her ethical sense was underdeveloped uh, and you you suggest that she seduced Abraham Lincoln right. uh, in order to trap him basically in marriage. Right. Uh, and generally your assessment of Mary Todd Lincoln is uh, on the harsh side. Can you uh, can you enlarge on sure. that, please? Sure. That, that's perhaps the most controversial aspect of the book. Um, and it had been the very controversial aspect of my first book, The Inner World of Abraham Lincoln. Um, and... Uh, well, let's get first with the seduction thesis. Uh, when I wrote the first book, uh, there was a big, long chapter in the inner world on the Lincoln marriage and how, how awful it was, how, how difficult she was. Um, and I prefaced that, by the way, and I'll preface my remarks to you by saying that, that Mary Lincoln deserves uh, to be pitied more than she deserves to be censured, that she had a pretty hard life. Um, she was born into wealth and privilege, but her mother died when she was six. And that's a tough blow for anybody to lose your mother when you're only six years old. Uh, and her father then remarries very quickly, a much younger woman than, than his uh, first wife. Uh, and the new wife says to her husband, Mary's father, dear, don't pay any attention to Mary and her seven siblings, six siblings. Um, pay attention to the eight children we're going to have. Uh, and so for Robert Smith uh, did sire a large number of children. Uh, and so and so the first batch of children, including Mary, get tuned out by their father and their stepmother. It was a classic blended family problem that we're familiar with today because of the high divorce rate. But in those days, it was a familiar problem created by the high death rate for, for young women, women and bearing children. So... Um, so anyway, so so she she loses her her mother when she's six, and her father then tunes her out shortly thereafter. Um, then um, she uh, she endures other um, hardships. Uh, her husband her husband gets murdered by her side at the peak of his power and influence and fame. She loses three of her four children before they reach adulthood, and even by the standards of the 19th century, that's an abnormally high percentage of of, mm -hmm. of loss for children. Um, uh, she also uh, seems to have in inherited uh, manic depressive uh, tendencies um, that, that most analyses of her personality, psychological studies by people more competent to do that than I am, uh, conclude quite reasonably, it seems to me, that she was manic depressive. And that tends to come from, uh, that's an inherited uh, source of mental instability. And there was lots of mental instability in her family. Uh, so she didn't ask to inherit that gene. She didn't ask to have her husband die at her side. She didn't ask to have three of her four children die. She didn't, before reaching adulthood, she didn't ask to have her mother die when she was sick. She didn't ask for her father to tune her out uh, shortly thereafter. And so she's more to be pitied than censured. But she did behave very badly. <laughs> and that has to be <laughs> borne in mind. And so, and so the bad, the, the kind of bad things she did, among other things, were, were to seduce him. Um, 
Now, this uh, when I wrote my my first book, The Inner World of Abraham Lincoln, then the, I didn't include that hypothesis in my my chapter on on the Lincoln marriage. Uh, but not long thereafter, a very fine historian out in Springfield, uh, Wayne Temple, wrote a book about Lincoln's religion. And in passing, he happened to mention um, the seduction hypothesis that that she um, seduced him and said, "You've got to marry me to protect my honor." And but he didn't follow it up. He just it was kind of throwaway line because he was writing, after all, about Lincoln's religion, not about his personal mm-hmm. life. Uh, and I thought, holy mackerel, why didn't I think of that? Because if you accept that hypothesis, then a number of, of aspects of the Lincoln wedding make sense that, that previously didn't make sense. For example, mm. uh, they got married on one day's notice. Now, that was highly unusual, particularly for somebody like Mary Lincoln, or Mary Todd. Mary Todd... Uh, was uh, uh, taken into uh, was brought up to Springfield by her older sister. Her her eldest sister Elizabeth had married the son of the governor of Illinois, and she had left Kentucky, settled in Springfield, and then one by one she brought up her sisters to introduce them to Springfield society and to arrange for their weddings and then have a great throw a great big wedding. Uh, and she did that for the, uh, the other sisters, but Mary got got wed on one day's notice. Why wasn't there a big wedding? Why wasn't there a big to-do? Well, that, that's always been something of a mystery. Lincoln told several people that he didn't love her enough to marry her. He told one of his two groomsmen that, that he was forced into the marriage. When he was uh, leaving the house where he was boarding to go to the wedding ceremony, he was asked, where are you going? And he said, to the devil, I guess. Uh, so, um, it was said that he looked more like an animal being led to the slaughter than a bridegroom being led to his wedding, although I'm told a lot of men look that way. Um, um, I wouldn't know anything about that. I wouldn't either. Um, and so uh, so uh, all those are some uh, – you have to figure out, well, why did he marry her if he didn't love her? Um, and and he uh, he was being forced and tells the groomsmen he'd be forced into marriage, unless this was the case. And Robert Todd Lincoln, the first son, was born eight months, three weeks, and four days after the wedding. Now that doesn't, in and of itself, prove anything, but in conjunction with those other uh, considerations, I think it makes a very plausible case that she did seduce him. Now another thing to bear in mind is that she was on the verge of old maidhood. The average age mm-hmm. of a of a woman in in uh, in Springfield and Sangamon County at that time for marriage was about 18. She was then 23. I mean, that's your verging on old maidhood at that stage. Um, and old maidhood in those days was regarded as a fate worse than death by women. And so, uh, and then I thought, well, uh, would she do something unethical like that? But then we see as first lady, she padded payroll, she padded expense accounts, she accepted bribes, she accepted kickbacks, she sold cotton trading permits, she sold pardons, she engaged in all kinds of unethical conduct, which made her husband terrified that she would do something to embarrass him publicly, which is one of the, uh, that piece of information about how Lincoln was worried that she would do something to humiliate him publicly when he was president is a piece of information I got from one of those interviews I discovered at Brown um, uh, at the John Hay Library. So uh, 
So if you accept that hypothesis, then it, then the the fact that they got married on one day's notice and that he married her despite the fact that he said he didn't love her enough and, and was told his groomsman that he was forced into the marriage, all that then makes sense if you accept that hypothesis. Now, there's mm-hmm. no hard evidence to prove it, but it does make sense. Um, given the, the configuration of, of considerations I just, just uh, mentioned. Uh, another relationship that you spend a lot of time on in the book is Lincoln's relationship with his father. Mm-hmm. And certainly other biographers have speculated about the type of relationship they have. Could you talk about that for sure, a little bit? Sure, by all means. That's probably the, the, the second most controversial aspect of the book. Um, that uh, that Lincoln had a terrible relationship with his father. Now that that's not a secret. Uh, it's been well known over over the years that that Lincoln and his father didn't get along very well, um, and that's been <clears throat> most uh, vividly established by a, a letter that he writes to his uh, stepbrother uh, when his father when their father. Uh, lay dying uh, mm, um, in right. a small town about 100 miles from Springfield. And Lincoln's father was illiterate, so he couldn't write to Lincoln, but he was living with his stepson. And the stepson writes to Lincoln saying, our father's dying and would like to see you now. Father was then maybe in his early 70s. Um, uh, and we're not exactly sure when the father was born, but that, that seems like a reasonable guess. And uh, Lincoln was in his early 40s. So Lincoln writes back in a letter that we've got that, that survived in, in his own handwriting, saying uh, to the stepbrother, saying, "Tell our father that it would be more painful than pleasant if we were to see each other now." Mm-hmm. And you know, whoa, because no matter how estranged a child may be from a parent, the imminence of death usually acts as a solvent on that estrangement, but not in Lincoln's case. So he wouldn't visit him on his deathbed. Then. Uh, Lincoln was the only one, <clears throat> excuse me, the only one in the family with enough money for a tombstone, and he never provided it. So there was no grave mark, no tombstone for mm-hmm. his father's grave. Um, his father never visited Springfield to see his grandchildren, uh, the, by Lincoln's children. Um, Lincoln didn't name a child after his father until after his father had died. The Lincolns had four children, all boys. That's another reason to feel some sympathy from Mrs. Lincoln, um, and uh, no daughter. And uh, so when the first son was born, he was named after Mary's father. And that was the tradition in those days. You named your son after your your, your parents. Um, so the firstborn son is named Robert Todd Lincoln after Mary's father, Robert Smith Todd. So you think the second born, another son comes along, that then it would be named Thomas Lincoln after Lincoln's father. But no, they named it after one of Lincoln's good friends at the bar and on the political uh, campaign trail, a guy named Edward Baker, so Eddie. Then a third son is born. You think, well, now maybe Lincoln's father will have the honor of seeing his name carried on by a grandson. But no, they named the third son, William, after... Mrs. Lincoln's half-sister's husband. Uh, <laughs> and it's only after Thomas Lincoln dies, Lincoln's father, that the fourth son uh, is named Thomas. But Lincoln doesn't call him Thomas or Tom. He calls him Tad. And that's mm. ostensibly because Lincoln said when he was born, he looked like a tadpole. He was all head and not much tail. 
But I think it also partly because he really didn't like the name Tom or Thomas, but he thought uh, part of him said, well, I should do something to acknowledge the old man did exist. Um, so anyway, so uh, there, there are lots of, uh, lots of evidence that there was pretty deep estrangement. And on top of that, there's all kinds of reminiscent material about Lincoln's relationship with his father. Now, this is reminiscent material that was gathered by William Herndon, Lincoln's law partner. Lincoln's law partner for 16 years is this, this fellow Herndon in Springfield. And Herndon, uh, even before Lincoln died, was starting to gather interview material about Lincoln to write a biography. And then after Lincoln died, he went, he corresponded with and interviewed scores of people who had known Lincoln, even when he was a, a, a tyke in Kentucky and then growing up in Southwest Indiana and then, uh, and then in New Salem, Illinois, and then in Springfield and Washington. So there's this tremendous archive of interview material, what we'd call an oral history today, uh, that Herndon had compiled. And that that tremendous uh, collection of interview materials had been regarded by historians for a long time as unreliable and untrustworthy. Uh, that that uh, the, the premier Lincoln scholar of two, three generations ago, a fellow named James G. Randall, who was my mentor's mentor, David Donald's mentor, Mm-hmm. Uh, and and he had argued that you couldn't trust the Herndon archive because these were old timers uh, making up stories out of whole cloth as they drooled on their walkers and <laughs> lied about the past. Um, and uh, that that uh, the the James, and James C. Randall was very influential, not just as a Lincoln scholar. And he published a four-volume study of Lincoln the President, and he had done a, a major book on Lincoln and, and the Constitution and, and the many other studies. He was also the president of the American Historical Association, the author of the standard textbook on the Civil War and Reconstruction, so he had a lot of prestige. So he published this book called Lincoln the President in four volumes. And in the second volume, there's an appendix called Sifting the Ann Rutledge Evidence. Now, hmm. that is about Lincoln's purported romance when he was in his early 20s, early and mid-20s in, in New Salem with a woman named Ann Rutledge. And there are 24 people who were interviewed by Herndon or with whom Herndon corresponded who talked about how they loved each other and they were going to get married and then she died tragically. Lincoln was terribly bereft and upset, depressed. Uh, but this sifting the Ann Rutledge uh, appendix in Lincoln, the President, Volume 2, Said, oh well, these these are untrustworthy reminiscences. There's no contemporary documentation that the, that Lincoln and, and Rutledge were lovers. Uh, no diary entries, no letters, uh, and these reminiscences are clearly untrustworthy. Written 30 and 40 years after the event, um, and so that cast and that cast doubt on not only the Ann Rutledge story itself, but on all of Herndon's archive. And because James G. Randall had such prestige. His uh, branding of the Herndon archive as untrustworthy and unreliable led historians to stay away from it for 50 years. And when I was doing my first book, I was I was trained by David Donald, whose dissertation had been on Herndon, his first book on Herndon, um, and which he contributed to this notion that you can't trust the Herndon interview material. Uh, and so I was very skeptical, but I said I, I, I said to myself I should look, give it a at least a casual glance, and so I obtained the microfilm version and and uh, sat down in the Connecticut College Library and 
then turned on the microfilm reader and started to go through these interviews. And I thought, oh, these are pretty good. I, I, I thought, well, I'm going to use these in my book. There's all kinds of good information here that you can't get anyplace else. And I thought, I'm going to get crucified by reviewers because <laughs> I've, all, all, all American historians who are interested in this period have been trained to believe that the Herndon Archive is a, is a toxic nuclear waste dump. Um, and to be avoided at all costs, but I thought, wow, but it seems to me to be legitimate. And, and mercifully, the year before my book appeared, two very fine historians in Illinois, Douglas Wilson at Knox College and John Y. Simon at Southern Illinois University, published articles in, in uh, scholarly journals uh, about the Ann Rutledge case saying mm. that clearly it was true and that the Randalls were wrong and that this was a legitimate story. Anyway, so that's a long way of getting, to getting around to Lincoln's relation with his father. The best evidence we have about the relationship with the father, aside from Lincoln's own letters, particularly that last letter, um, is uh, reminiscent material by people who lived with the Lincolns when Lincoln was growing up, including a guy named Dennis Hanks and his, his niece Sophie Hanks and some others. And these interview materials show up in the Herndon Archive. And they, lots of them testify to how estranged Lincoln was from his father. Um, and, uh, and, and so it seemed to me that these reminiscences, in conjunction with Lincoln's last letter, when he talks about how it would be more painful than pleasant for him to see his father on his deathbed, um, led me to believe that the estrangement was pretty deep. And, uh, and then, then it, it occurred to me that that was of some interest uh, in helping to explain Lincoln's depressions, uh, mm. and also because I think it shed some light on why Lincoln hated and loathed and despised slavery so much from the time he was young. Yes, right. And and uh, the, there are people who will tell you to this day that Lincoln was a reluctant emancipator, that he dragged his feet on issuing the Emancipation Proclamation because his heart really wasn't in the cause and that he was only forced by political pressure and diplomatic pressure and military pressure to, to introduce the Emancipation Proclamation, but it was very limited in scope and it was tardy in coming and all that. That's all nonsense. Lincoln hated <laughs> and loathed and despised slavery from the time he was young. If he had had his druthers the day he was inaugurated, he would have issued an Emancipation Proclamation. But there were certain constitutional and political constraints which uh, right. made it very impossible to do it right off the bat. Uh, and so, but it occurred to me, and, and Lincoln says this on many occasions: "I've hated slavery. Uh, I've always hated slavery. I cannot remember when I did not so think and feel." He says in the public letter in 1864, uh, "I've hated slavery as much as any abolitionist." He says back in 1858. Um, and uh, and so there's lots of evidence where Lincoln himself says this, and then there, and then when you when you look at the historical record, there's also hard evidence to corroborate that that testimony on Lincoln's uh, about from Lincoln about his own hatred of slavery being uh, a long having been a part of his psyche for a long time. Uh, when he was a young man in the Illinois State Legislature. Uh, as a young man of uh, 28 years old, uh, he's serving his second term as a member of the lower house of the Illinois State Legislature, the Illinois House of Representatives. And the uh, legislature is asked at that time by southern state legislatures to condemn the abolitionist movement. The abolitionist movement, which uh, had been was getting underway again in the 1830s after a long period of dormancy. Uh, uh, started to upset southern state or southern 
uh, slaveholders and uh, the state legislatures in those slave states appealed to their northern counterparts and condemned these abolitionists. And so the Illinois state legislature, by the, well, the House of Representatives, by the overwhelming vote of 77 to 6, voted to condemn the abolitionist movement. Mm. So six guys had the nerve to go against the tide. One of them was Lincoln. Two of those six had even more uh, strong convictions. They went a step further. They uh, circulated a petition, uh, a resolution, saying that slavery was based on injustice and bad policy. And Lincoln wrote that, and he was only able to get one other legislator to sign it. Uh, and that legislator was from Vermont originally, <laughs> uh, educated at Middlebury, and, and was not going to run for re-election because he was about to be appointed to be a judge. So here's Lincoln sticking his neck out. And here he is. He's 28 years old. He's living in central Illinois, which is filled with Kentuckians. He's an ambitious politician. He knows he's not going to get any political uh, uh, support from his constituents by sticking his neck out on the slavery issue because these Kentuckians, even though they didn't bring slaves with them, they couldn't, but their pro-slavery attitudes came with them as they moved into Illinois. Uh, It wasn't going to get him any political credit. Uh, and yet he sticks his neck out in 1837 as, as a young man, well before it was popular to be a, a, a critic of slavery. And uh, I, I wondered, why, why would he do that? And in 1860, he's asked about, about his anti-slavery uh, convictions, and he said, well, they were, they were enunciated back in 1837. You can check it in the Illinois Journal, uh, the House of Representatives Journal, and it's, that was my stand in 1837, and it's my stand today in 1860. Uh, so I thought, oh, that's that's pretty strong evidence that he was willing to stick his neck out on the slavery issue, and that his his opposition to slavery was of early uh, standing. And then, in his late 30s, he serves in the United States House of Representatives in just one term. That was his total sum and substance of experience on the national level before he became president. So much for resumes, right? Right. <laughs> uh, and so, so in this one term in the United States House from 1847 to 49. Uh, Lincoln, once again, shows his early hatred of slavery because of the slavery issue was very prominent then with the Wilmot Proviso and all that, um, with uh, what to do with slavery in the newly acquired territory as a result of the Mexican War. Uh, and uh, Lincoln uh, introduces or announces that he's going to introduce a bill abolishing slavery in the District of Columbia. Now, Congress has has plenary power over the district, not over the states, but over the district. So it could abolish slavery in the District of Columbia. And at the time, Congress was considering a much more modest measure, which was to prohibit slave trading, the purchase and, and, and the sale and purchase of slavery within the district, <clears throat> but, but not slavery itself. And Lincoln went much further by, by saying, I'm going to introduce this bill to abolish slavery itself in the district, and I've lined up 15 influential Washingtonians who, who uh, say it's a good idea. And then the Southerners went ballistic, said, well, if you pass legislation like that, we're going to break up the union. And so the 15 supporters that Lincoln had lined up withdrew their support, and Lincoln said, well, it doesn't stand a chance and didn't actually introduce the bill. But the fact that he framed the bill, announced that he was going to introduce it, had the support of the leading anti-slavery members of Congress – as further proof, I think, that Lincoln really did hate and loathe and despise slavery from, the, from early on, well before it became politically fashionable. Um, and so I said, well, now, where did this, this early hatred of slavery come from? Because now if he had been born and raised in Vermont, <laughs> that would be one thing. Yeah, but he was born in sense. Kentucky, a slave state. And he was been in the part of Kentucky where there was almost no anti-slavery sentiment. Uh, 
And that's where he spent his first seven years. And then he and his family moved to southwestern Indiana, which was filled with Kentuckians. And they didn't bring their slaves with them because of the Northwest Ordinance for bad slavery from going uh, into Indiana. Um, but they brought their pro-slavery views with him. So he was there from 7 to 21. And there was no anti-slavery sentiment in that southern, uh, southwestern pocket, as it was called, of, of, of Indiana. So he isn't imbibing it from the atmosphere he's growing up in. Um, then he moves to central Illinois at the age of 21. Uh, and again, central Illinois is filled with Kentuckians. These are not anti-slavery uh, types. Uh, so he's not uh, imbibing it in the atmosphere in Illinois either. He's running for office where you have to <clears throat> take into account the views of your constituents. And um, his constituents are not anti-slavery. So I thought, well, this is very curious. Then he marries into a slave-owning uh, family in Kentucky, a prominent slave-owning family, the Todd family. So he's not <laughs> becoming uh, infected with anti-slavery virus through his in-laws. Uh, so where does this come from? Uh, so I thought about that and thought about that. And then I noticed that, that when Lincoln does start formally to denounce slavery, not just in, in, in legislatures, but, but in public speeches in the 1850s, and he gives well over 100 very strong anti-slavery speeches in the 1850s. Um, he emphasizes again and again one theme to the virtual exclusion to all others. He doesn't talk about the physical cruelty of slavery, the beatings and the maimings and the whippings and all that. That was a very powerful argument that the abolitionist right. uses, but Lincoln doesn't use it. He doesn't talk about the breakup of slave families, which is a very powerful argument, as the popularity of Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin indicates. He doesn't talk about the uh, suppression of civil liberties in the South, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of association, and all that. Uh, he does, uh, and in the North, too. He doesn't talk about um, the creation of a quasi-aristocratic social order in the South based on slavery and how that's so incompatible in the democratic republic. So, uh, but what does he talk about? He says time and again, uh, and this is from the, this is the very first big anti-slavery speech he gives in 1864, uh, I mean, 1854, up through his, his uh, immortal second inaugural address in 1865, he emphasizes again and again that it's an outrage that slaveholders uh, who do no work themselves um, send their slaves out and they do the, all this hard work in the hot sun and yet the people who don't do the work then derive all the profits. Yeah, that's right. And so Lincoln says it's an outrage. These slaveholders are rewriting the word of God Almighty himself who said when uh, uh, expelling Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden on men, he laid a curse saying in the sweat of thy brow shalt thou eat thy bread. And Lincoln says it's an, it's, it's, it's an outrage that the slaveholders have rewritten that to read in the sweat of somebody else's brow shalt thou eat thy bread. So I thought about that and then I thought, why does he emphasize that? And now Lincoln wasn't the only one to make this argument, but I thought it was noteworthy that he made it to the virtual exclusion of all these other arguments. Mm -hmm. And then it occurred to me, one of the reasons that Lincoln and his father were, were estranged is his father would yank him out of school uh, to go work for neighbors to make money. Uh, and so Lincoln would, would, and Lincoln loved school, loved education, but he, his father kept yanking him out of school and sending him off to his neighbors to dig up stumps and kill snakes and uh, <laughs> chop down trees and build fences and do this really backbreaking farm labor. And Lincoln might get 25 cents or 30 cents a day for this, and he would turn it all over to his father. Because that was the law of the land in those days. You were the property of your father until you were 21 may seem quaint to us in the 21st century to regard children as an economic asset, but that's the way it was back then. 
Anyway, so so when Lincoln then talks about what an outrage that, that slavery is outrageous, it's a monstrous injustice. He calls it um, because somebody goes out and works in the hot sun all day, namely the slaves, and somebody else derives all the profits, namely the slave owners. That he felt so strongly about this because he himself had experienced that as a, as a youngster growing up, and that he unconsciously identified himself with the slaves and identified his father with the slave owners. You also touch on uh, the, the possibility of, of, of violence between Lincoln's father and Lincoln, uh, yes. you know, physical discipline yes. and things like that. And one of the things we know about Lincoln is that he was very averse to interpersonal violence yes. uh, you know, between people and also a violence against animals. Absolutely. Um, right. How much do you think? that can be traced back to his relationship with his father. Well, it's, uh, it, it could well be uh, that, that, that we, we, we have good evidence that Lincoln's father would punish him uh, physically. Uh, that wasn't entirely uncommon. Corporal punishment by parents was, was fairly standard, but it seems to have particularly affected Lincoln. Um, and, and we also know, as, as you say, that he was very much opposed to cruelty to animals, which among boys on the frontier was common sport boys would think it was great fun to pick up a turtle and throw it against a tree and smash its mm -hmm. shell and watch it quiver and die or take a snake and throw it into the fire and listen to it sizzle and you know that sort of thing you know, that um and lincoln would would we know from some of these reminiscences that that herndon collected that he would lecture his playmates on this and say that that was wrong cruelty to animals is wrong um and that may have been in part because of his own experience of, of being uh, physically uh, punished by his father. But I think it also, in part, is just that, that Lincoln had an unusually sensitive conscience. Mm. And, and it, you, you can't explain why some, some kids have unusually sensitive consciences and others don't. Um, my, I've been a vegetarian for 35, 40 years or something like that. Um, my children, when they were young, would say, Daddy, well, we know it bothers you, but it doesn't bother us. And I would say, okay, you little barbarians, what kind of killed animal do you want for dinner tonight, right? <laughs> and, and yet I had a colleague in the history department at Connecticut College who was not a vegetarian. His wife wasn't a vegetarian, but when their little son became aware of where pork chops and hot dogs and hamburgers came from, said he didn't want any part of that. So he was much more like Lincoln, and my children were more like, well, most of us. Um, and so, and you can't account for that. That's just that's just a, yeah. a, a, a God-given. Uh, and so I think that also explains part of Lincoln's uh, hostility to slavery, um, that, that for some reason he was given this uh, unusually sensitive conscience, which may have been heightened, by, as you suggest, by, by his own experience of being corporally punished. Right. Another thing we know about Lincoln that comes out clearly in the first volume of your book is his uh, passion and appetite for politics. Why do you think Lincoln loved politics, not just making policy, but you know the nuts and bolts. He was almost Clintonian in his love for you know campaigning, getting out to you know on the hustings. How, how do you explain his love for politics? Well, it's, uh, the the and, and you're very right to point that out. That that uh, we tend to think of Lincoln as, as this great orator, this great humanitarian, and all that, which is all true. But he was also very much concerned with the nuts and bolts of practical politics and winning elections and forming parties and having conventions and, and the like. Um, and making sure that there were precinct captains and and that they mm -hmm. they were they were conscientious in carrying out their duties. Uh, yeah, he did the grunt work. Yes, he really yes, seemed he to did. He did a lot of it, and he and he oversaw others um, and was very indignant when, when people weren't doing their jobs, mm -hmm. the, the nuts and bolts. Um, 
And I, I think that goes back to the larger question of where did the intensity of Lincoln's political ambition to get ahead come from? Um, and uh, I speculate uh, that, that one of the reasons why Lincoln was so intensely ambitious politically was because of a, a kind of inferiority complex. Um, and we know Lincoln did feel uh, a sense of inferiority in, on a number of counts. Um, for one, he was very embarrassed about his lack of education. Lincoln himself says in an autobiographical fragment that he wrote at the time of his first election around that time um, that he had a little bit of education in Kentucky and a little bit in Indiana, but if you added it all up, uh, it would probably come to less than 12 months. And that's a very sobering statistic for people like you and me in the education business <laughs> to think our most eloquent and gifted president had less than a year's education. Um, and and so he, he felt inferior to lawyers uh, and others who had been through um, college. Uh, and, uh, and, and he writes a little autobiographical fragment in which he says that uh, he tries to do as much as he can to, to make up for his want of education. And when he was asked to fill out a form for a congressional directory, you know, it was your name and your address and your age and your marital status and your children, and then de- education. And for education, he just wrote defective. <laughs> Um, so uh, clearly we know he felt felt inferior about his lack of formal education, and particularly since he was involved in a profession of <laughs> lawyers where right. people were educated. Um, uh, we also know he felt uh, somewhat inferior about his poverty-stricken background mm-hmm. because the, the, the Lincolns on the frontier, everybody on the frontier was poor, but the Lincolns were really poor. Um, and, and that we know from all kinds of testimony from their neighbors and, and friends in Kentucky and Indiana, and also from from census records when Thomas Lincoln Lincoln's father was in Illinois on his own and um, was not at all prosperous. Uh, so so Lincoln was embarrassed about growing up in uh, in abject poverty, and and. And growing up in a in a very crude world of of drunkenness and illiteracy and violence mm-hmm. um, and primitive conditions, uh, he was also apparently embarrassed by his mother. His mother was born out of wedlock, uh, and that whole family of his mother's, the Hankses, uh, was a pretty uh, pretty much a, a group of lowlifes, um, and, and he seems to have been embarrassed about them. He was rather proud of the Lincoln tradition, even though his father was was, something, was a shiftless ne'er-do-well, in large part. Uh, there were Lincolns dating back to the 17th century coming over to... to uh, to Massachusetts, uh, some of whom had ch- achieved distinction, um, but he was very embarrassed about his his Hanks family background, uh, and he seems also to have been embarrassed about his lack of social polish, that he he never really did feel comfortable in in um, uh, dealing with people whose manners were more refined than his, uh, and um, he was very tall, he was six foot four, which in those days would be uh, the equivalent of being six eight or six nine today. It was a giant, uh, and uh, that made him somewhat awkward around women because he was so much taller than they were, and he was so sure. awkward. And that that he had very little uh, ability to relate easily to the opposite sex, and who found him off tall and gawky and awkward. And he was also he wasn't very physically 
prepossessing. Uh, and he used to love to make jokes about ugly men, um, and mostly at his own expense. Uh, so, so we think that he did have a, a sense of inferiority, and that that <clears throat> that helps political. Some political psychologists argue that that helps drive people into politics. Not everybody, but but a lot of people mm-hmm. who go into politics have a, a unusually needy egos. Um, sort of like people in show business, uh, oftentimes have very really need that applause and that and all the paparazzi and the fame uh, to compensate for a sense of of inner worthlessness or, or inferiority. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and Lincoln found, he says in one of his autobiographical fragments, that that the first election he was in, which wasn't actually a formal election, but it was uh, to uh, in a militia company. When he was a young man, he volunteered for service as a militiaman in the Black Hawk War. Uh, and uh, just only 22, and uh, the militia company to which he belonged chose its own officers, and they elected him as their captain. Mm. And he later said there was no election that gave him more satisfaction. So I think that gave him a taste of what it was like to win an election. Uh, and uh, and then winning elections was a kind of way of, of affirming that he was lovable, um, that he was uh, not worthless, um, that he was worthwhile. Um, so I think that that was the fuel that uh, led him into politics. And then why he becomes so interested in, in the nuts and bolts is he really wanted to win. <laughs> he said, no, yeah. this is important. And, and, uh, and he was ambitious, yeah, too, right? Well, I mean, that, he was very ambitious. And we tend to – his law partner Herndon said famously that, that uh, <clears throat> his ambition was a little engine that knew no rest – and that he was like Napoleon. He slept with one eye open, <laughs> always looking out for the way to get ahead politically. Uh, but that's not to say that his ambition didn't have a component of idealism, which it did. Sure. Because uh, ambition in and of itself is a neutral quality. Um, it, it can, ambition can drive people like Hitler and Stalin and Mao, <laughs> uh, or it can drive people like Lincoln and Churchill and the like. So, um uh, to say somebody's intensely ambitious is not necessarily pejorative. Sure, and one of the things that Lincoln, you know, one of his chief principles was Lincoln was a uh, he loved the union, uh, right. which is a word that we don't really use anymore. Right. But you know, I, I, we know, and you document this extensively that you know during the secession winter, Lincoln was absolutely uncompromising yep. on that the union must. Stay together. Right. There could be no compromise, like the contending compromise right. and so forth. Why do you think Lincoln loved the Union and the concept of the Union so much? Well, um, <clears throat> I think that that Lincoln's uh, insistence that the Union be preserved was uh, rooted in his sense that that the United States had a had a special mission uh, in the world to prove that you could give common ordinary citizens common ordinary people, a significant voice in their governance, and that that system would really work. That democracy wasn't simply a philosopher's dream that looked good on paper, but was impractical and unworkable in practice. And that the United States was really, uh, and it's hardly unique to Lincoln, lots of people thought this about, that the United States really was to show, one of the functions of the United States as a nation was to show the rest of the world that, that democracy, the, the allowing common ordinary people a significant voice in their governance was, was a practical system. And it would lead to prosperity and to uh, freedom and liberty and, and social advancement and the like. And that if the United States were to fail as a nation, it would go far to discredit 
the notion mm-hmm. of democracy. And in fact, um, within less than a month after the war began, John Hay, Lincoln's assistant personal secretary, comes into the president's office and says, Mr. President, the mailbag is bulging with appeals to you to emancipate the slaves. And Lincoln says, well, uh, that's an important issue to be sure, but it seems to me that that's not the central issue. The central issue of this conflict is to prove that democracy is not an absurdity. And if we fail in this effort, it will go far to discredit the notion that people should be trusted with their own governance. And so, uh, and that's a point that Lincoln keeps trying to make. Uh, and, and he believes it's insufficiently appreciated during the war, that, that this mm-hmm. isn't a war just about keeping one nation from breaking up into two nations. It's not like just Slovakia <laughs> seceding from Czechoslovakia, uh, from Bohemian Moravia in our own time. Um, it, it's, it's more than just preserving a nation's unity. It's more than just abolishing slavery, important as that is. What's, what's really at stake here is, is proving that government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish, that, that, that we, are, we are being looked at around the world by emperors and kings and monarchs and popular leaders and all that uh, as an example of whether democracy is, in fact, a, a workable, practicable system. And therefore, we should regard Lincoln, I think, not just as the savior of the Union or the, the great emancipator, but as, as, as the vindicator of democracy. That's, that's why he thought it was so important that the Union be preserved. Because if, if you allowed the South to secede, uh, that in effect said, it's okay to hold an election, and if you lose an election, then you can break up the government. That violates the principle of majority rule. And once, once you allow that principle to get established, the nation will fall apart. Pretty soon you'll have not just a north and a south, but then you'll have an east and a west, and then there'll be various secessions, and pretty soon you'll have the independent Republic of New London, the independent <laughs> Republic of Hartford, the independent yeah. Republic of New Haven, and we'll be like Europe in the Middle Ages, all of these cities yeah. fighting each other, um, and, and democracy will be um, a thing of the past. Mm. Uh, you make uh, quite a statement at the end of your book, uh, and I want to expand on it. You write that you know, Lincoln's personality was the North's secret weapon right. in the Civil War, right. the key variable that spelled the difference between victory and defeat. That is, uh, th- that is quite a statement. Could you expand on that, sure, please? Sure, sure. Um, <clears throat> And I'm not the only one to make this argument. I, I, I think I quote James Ford Rhodes and a number of other people who have made that argument, mm-hmm. uh, or at least have, have uttered it if they haven't developed it at length. Um, that the great, <clears throat> the the if 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 um, if a, an odds maker had been uh, laying odds on the South's chances to win mm-hmm. the Civil War as of mm-hmm. April 12, 1861, as as the war begins. He would probably have given the South at least even odds and probably favorable odds. Seems yeah, to me. I agree. Uh, that um, that the North's advantages in manpower and uh, and economic strength are considerable to be sure, but the South's offsetting advantages and they didn't have to conquer the North. Um, they had um, they were fighting on their own turf. They were fighting for what they believed was the principles of the revolution. They they had every reason to believe that European intervention would come and and, and the British and the French would intervene. And that and an oddsmaker had to take all that into account. And and so it seems to me logical that that uh, that the the South uh, should be considered the North should be considered the underdog at the outset of the war. Now the North's advantages in manpower and economic strength would prevail 
only if the North stayed united. If the four border states, the four slave states uh, that abutted the, the North, that is Maryland, Delaware, Kentucky, and Missouri, stayed loyal to the Union, and if the divisions within uh, the other free states um, were, were uh, minimized, uh, and northern morale and northern unity and northern persistence and northern resolve uh, was maintained, and Lincoln was brilliant at doing that. And it's hard to imagine any president from Jackson to Roosevelt who would have had the ability to keep the North united, to have the political sensibility, to, to the eloquence. to Because to, one of the things a war leader has to do time and again is to remind his constituents why this war is important, why we're sending men to die and be maimed um, and for widows and orphans to be created. Is it worthwhile? What's the cost? What, what, what's, what, are, what are we hoping to achieve out of this? And Lincoln was brilliant at, at uh, stating what, the importance of the war and, and its larger significance. He was brilliant in keeping the Republican Republican Party united, because the Republican Party in those days, like parties all the time in this country, have you know, moderate wings, radical wings, and conservative wings, and how do you keep all of those uh, together? And he believed that if you didn't keep the Republican Party together, you couldn't keep the North united. And so he did a brilliant job in, a, in his appointments and his stroking of the various factions, his distribution of patronage, um, his, his political timing, all of that required a kind of statesmanship that you don't see in James Buchanan, Andrew Johnson, and the people who <laughs> preceded Lincoln. And it's one of the ironies of American history that, that Lincoln is pretty widely acknowledged to be the greatest American president, uh, and that his predecessor, James Buchanan, and his successor, Andrew Johnson, are, used, uh, are duking it out for the worst, <laughs> for the honor of being the worst, the dishonor of being the worst president. Which tends- Although it's kind of ironic, given Lincoln's wiggery, that you know, it's a lot of people have pointed out how much he came to, uh, you know, admire uh, some Jacksonian qualities. Right, particularly uh, union, unionism, yeah, uh, that, right. and, and, and the resolve to maintain the union. But of course, that was also Daniel Webster, union right. <laughs> and liberty now yep. and forever one and the same. Um, yeah. Yep. So, uh, uh, but Lincoln's wiggery is also interesting. Uh, why did Lincoln become a Whig? Now, <clears throat> when I was um, in school, the Whigs were portrayed as these um, these aristocrats, these silk stocking uh, elitists um, whom nobody should respect in retrospect. Uh, and one of the things that uh, historians have done recently, Michael Holt and uh, Daniel Walker Howe and others have done, is to, is to revive the Whigs and say, well, look, there was a certain element within the Whig party that fits that, that old stereotype. But also the Whigs were the party of, of improvement. They were the party of, uh, of uh, making things better that that you can you you can uh, innovate you can introduce uh, innovation you can and and you can introduce uh, market capitalism and that's one of the things people find sometimes hard to believe about Lincoln Lincoln was really an enthusiastic capitalist um, and and I argue as, as you as you Dallas uh, recall that um, Lincoln became a Whig in part because he grew up in, uh, as I mentioned earlier, in abject poverty, rural ignorance, rural isolation, and the like. And he didn't want anybody to have to grow up in, those, in circumstances like the ones that he had experienced when he was a kid. Mm-hmm. And the way to overcome rural isolation and ignorance and poverty and backwardness is to allow people to, to move beyond the stage of subsistence farmer into a market. Uh, where where they could grow for a market and not just for themselves. 
Um, and that was the way in which you could become prosperous, and you could you could become educated, and you become civilized, and the like. Uh, but in order to to enter a market, you have to have transportation. You have to be able to get your your products to to a market. You need decent roads and canals and river and harbor improvements and railroads and the like. And those uh, improvements uh, are expensive, and they just can't be undertaken by mm-hmm. private capital. There just isn't enough. And so it really should be an enterprise to promote economic growth through. Uh, government action on the state and national level through internal improvements, which we would call today infrastructure, um, right. through banking, because if people can't borrow money to, to improve their farms or to establish a business, or if they have to just save up from their little income month after month or year after year, it's going to take forever. But if we have a decent banking system, that will make it possible for people to get ahead. And if we have a decent education system, and if we have, we have protective tariffs to keep us from being victimized by dumpers, um, other nations that wish to strangle our industry in their in their infancy so um, so he becomes a Whig because he wants to liberate people from the kind of ignorance and isolation and backwardness that he experienced growing up and so his original uh, political ideology was a kind of liberation ideology which which was focused on white folks like the ones he knew and right. grew up with but then it expanded to include black folks as as, uh, as he grew up well, we have, or I, have taken up enough of your time today. Um, I have one more question sure. for you, and I'm sure you're going to see this coming, and you've had it before. And What is your opinion of Spielberg's Lincoln? Well, I, I, I like that movie a lot. I thought it could have been better. Um, the, one most, the, the most unfortunate aspect is, is when Spielberg has Lincoln stand up and say, I am the president of the United States, clothed with immense power. And I, I thought, no, wait a minute, that's, that's Lyndon Johnston. That's the way Lyndon Johnston would talk. And I know, I know he was supposed to base this movie on Doris's book about, about right. uh, Lincoln, but I think he also got her book about Lyndon Johnson somehow confused. <laughs> um, but on the whole, I thought, I thought it, did, it did a good job. Uh, and and I thought Daniel Day Lewis uh, was was uh, excellent, and oh, and I was amazed that um, that uh, when Mrs. Lincoln and the president have their quarrel about whether Robert should go into the army or not, she says, "Well, you've never liked Robert. You thought that I trapped you into marriage, and he was the product of that entrapment." And I just about fell off my seat because, as, <laughs> as we were talking about earlier, I'm, I, I make that seduction argument, um, and I'm the only one that I know who does it at any length, anyway. Um, and I had met with Spielberg and, and the playwright Tony Kushner, along with about 15 other uh, civil warriors and Lincoln specialists, four or five years ago to discuss the movie. Uh, and I hadn't, I hadn't mentioned that. Nobody had mentioned that, in fact, at the, at the time. In fact, when we were all sitting around, there was a Mary Lincoln biographer there, and she was saying, oh, Mrs. Lincoln was very helpful in shaping the president's policies and his appointments and was a great helpmate. And others were nodding in their heads in agreement. And I said, no, 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 sorry. I wasn't that way at all, you know, and explained why I thought differently. And, and Spielberg, after hearing my litany of, of just of complaints about her, said, my God, I can't make a movie in the 21st century with a central female character like right. that. And, and so Doris Kearns Goodwin pipes up and says, ah, make her a minor character. <laughs> oh, and another thing I think I may have contributed to the movie at that uh, in that powwow. Uh, we had an all-day session in New York. Uh, was um, Spielberg says now how can I uh, illustrate the horrors of war without without having a big battle scene a la Saving mm-hmm. Private Ryan? Right. And I said, well, to my way of thinking, one of the most vivid 
images of, that uh, suggest the horrors of war is descriptions of hospitals in Gettysburg after the war. And every house in Gettysburg became a hospital. Mm-hmm. And outside the window of every house, there grew a great pile of limbs, this arms and legs just being thrown out the window and these little haystacks growing up. Um, and as you may recall, in the, if, you, if you've seen the movie, I trust, mm-hmm. uh, you may recall there's a, a scene in which <laughs> some severed limbs are quite vividly uh, displayed. Um, so um, I think I can take a little bit of credit for some, some aspects of the movie. But on the whole, I thought it was a good job. I would have preferred that um, that the movie deal with the, the evolution of Lincoln's thinking about, about black citizenship rights. Because people today are, are constantly reminded that back in 1858, when Lincoln was running for the Senate against uh, the incumbent Stephen A. Douglas, that he said black people shouldn't be allowed to vote or sit on juries or intermarry with whites or hold office. Uh, and they go, oh, well, Lincoln's a hopeless racist. And that, but ignoring the fact that uh, Stephen A. Douglas was, was an outrageous racist engaged in uh, a yeah. constant race baiting, whereas Lincoln was saying, let's, let's keep our eye on the main subject, which is not whether black people should have voting rights, but whether slavery should exist or not. Uh, let's not muddy the waters. And slavery, if, you don't think sl- if you think slavery is wrong, vote for us. If you don't think it's wrong, vote for them. But let's not muddy the waters. Anyway, so Lincoln then in um, April of 1865, just after Robert E. Lee surrendered, calls publicly for black voting rights, at least limited black voting rights for the veterans of the Union Army and the very intelligent, by which we assume he meant literate. And I would have preferred to see the, the evolution of Lincoln, because then you could bring in Frederick Douglass and, and the like. Sure. But I'm not a playwright. That would be very hard to do on a two-hour uh, movie. But it sounds like you might have a second career as a <laughs> consultant. A movie consultant. Well, I'd be happy to serve that function. <laughs> well, Mike Burlingame, I want to thank you for... Uh, accommodating us today and being on and uh, I really enjoyed it well thank Uh, you so So did I you were very kind to invite me well take care you do the same bye now All right, thank you I want to thank everybody for joining us today we've been talking with Michael Burlingame the author of Abraham Lincoln A Life just published in paperback edition by Johns Hopkins University Press in 2013 thanks everybody